On Wednesday, August 4th, the front page of the Times Union featured a large photo of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. He was staring wide-eyed straight out at the reader. Above him, in big, bold letters, a simple headline read, Fear and Intimidation. Beneath it was a full accounting of State Attorney General Letitia James' scathing report she released this week that determined Cuomo had sexually harassed women. I think it's fair to say, all eyes are on Albany right now. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll have the latest on the fallout from the Attorney General's report. And I am inspired by all the brave women who came forward. But more importantly, I believe them. And why are so many local on-air broadcasters leaving the industry this year? The pay isn't great, the hours are tough, and the culture, especially in modern day, can be very, very challenging. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. We are here once again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. Go over the top headlines. It's been a big week. I, I think that might be an understatement. And obviously the top news is what's going on with Governor Andrew Cuomo. But we'll come back to that later in this segment. I want to start with another story that's been pretty big for us over the years. Michael Mann, the leader of the now defunct My Payroll HR and the perpetrator of one of the largest bank fraud schemes the region has ever seen, was finally sentenced for his crimes. Oh, and also we got a good look at his face. So tell us more about what happened this week. Yeah, Michael Mann, who, as as you noted, um, led a number of business entities, the most famous or infamous of which is My Payroll HR, which was basically a payroll processing company, pleaded guilty last year to uh, 12 felonies, the most serious um, being bank fraud, basically that he had falsified documents that he had defrauded banks by wildly overvaluing his businesses and that he had essentially run a multi-million dollar shell game with a lot of the money that my payroll HR was processing, which meant that, geez, I guess it's almost two years ago now, early September 2019, all of a sudden, all of the people whose paychecks across the country were supposed to be processed by my payroll HR, found their accounts drained in some cases of their salary, creating immense hardship for, you know, hardworking families all across the country. Man, when he appeared in court for his sentencing on Wednesday, apologized and said, I'm completely aware that I caused all of this. He was given 12 years, which uh, works out to a year in prison for each one of the felonies that he um, that he pleaded guilty to. He's going to serve them. It is likely down in North Carolina, or at least he asked if he could serve them down in North Carolina. He has moved from the capital region down there. 
and he wants to actually serve his time in the same prison that another fraudster, uh, far more famous, Bernie Madoff, did his time in. All right, let's move on to COVID numbers. Our COVID numbers here in the Capital Region are higher today than they were last year at the same time, significantly so. And in fact, they're also currently the highest in the state. So what's the latest there? Yeah, Bethany Bump and Lauren Stanforth did a story that noted that on August 3rd of 2020, uh, Albany County had nine new coronavirus cases. On the same day in 2021, Albany County racked up almost 50 new cases. This is, of course, all because of the highly contagious Delta variant, which is infecting people, especially people who, for whatever reason, have chosen to remain unvaccinated. And uh, as health officials are saying across the country, while there are cases of people who have been vaccinated uh, experiencing what are known as, as breakthrough or breakout cases, the vast majority of people who are getting sick with COVID-19 now are the unvaccinated. And that is, that's needless suffering. And uh, in many ways, the result of disinformation campaigns that are being waged by people with their own selfish, potentially commercially driven or political agendas. And uh, it is, uh, it's a national tragedy sobering reality that the pandemic is still very much with us. I look forward to the day when we don't have to talk about it on the podcast anymore because well, <laughs> it's a it's, thing of the past. Really, I, I say it's a national tragedy, but in the capital region, as Lauren and Bethany noted, we have the most COVID-19 cases, new cases per capita of any region in New York with a positivity percentage rate that as of the writing of the story was just under 4%. Well, that is certainly remarkable. All right. We'll be following that closely. Uh, finally, before we get to Governor Andrew Cuomo, one last thing. The Canadian border is opening on Monday at long last. We have a, an article up on our website, eight things to know before you head up to Canada. What, what can you say about that? What, what should we be looking out for before we go to Canada? Yeah, Rebecca Ward and Claire Bryan um, did a story with uh, the headline, eight things uh, to know before you visit Canada. And this story was, without a doubt, even with all the news about Governor Cuomo that we're about to discuss, has just been a monster um, for us online. People are clearly searching for this information or are desperate to get it. And Rebecca Ward and Claire Bryan noted in the story that if you are planning to travel across the border to visit our northern neighbors, you're going to need to take a test within 72 hours of, uh, of crossing the border. You might also be subject to a rapid test at the border. You need to have your paperwork handy. You know, you can't just upload your vaccination record to, you know, the required app. You really need to have it on hand, too. And also have a quarantine plan in place if, uh, if you need it. It's also going to be different when you go over there. Different provinces have different masking and social distance uh, regimens that they're following. You definitely want to check with uh, your hotel or your lodging to make sure there aren't any uh, requirements that you need to need to meet before you get there uh, and book early, as they say. The key takeaway here is plan ahead. Plan always ahead. a good, always a good tactic for anything that you do. But in this Be case, prepared. particularly so. It's the Boy Scout motto, without a doubt. 
Exactly. All right. Let's let's get to it. Governor Andrew Cuomo, the AG, the attorney general of the state of New York, Letitia James, finally released a report on her investigation into sexual harassment allegations against Governor Andrew Cuomo. And it was quite scathing. I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, almost 170 pages detailing what can only be described as serial sexual harassment by the governor. The details in the report were devastating, um, not only for the governor, but for uh, a lot of senior members of his staff in terms of how they responded or did not respond to allegations when they were raised by the governor's female victims, many of whom uh, came forward to talk to the outside attorneys who were hired by the attorney general's office to conduct the investigation. The independent investigation has concluded that Governor Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women and in doing so violated federal and state law. The press conference that uh, the attorney general held on Tuesday morning to lay out the particulars was um, was forensic and it was very bad for the governor. And I think it's fair to say that the brief videotaped response that the governor presented two hours later on Tuesday did not do him much in the way of good. I want you to know directly from me that I never touched anyone inappropriately or made inappropriate sexual advances. I am 63 years old. I have lived my entire adult life in public view. That is just not who I am. And that's not who I have ever been. It really didn't respond in any kind of detailed way to the allegations contained in the report. There is another complaint I want to address from a woman in my office who said that I groped her in my home office. Let me be clear, that never happened. He basically, he accused the woman who had levied the most serious charge against him of being a liar in claiming that he had groped her at the executive mansion. This is a current gubernatorial aide, mind you, and said that Charlotte Bennett, who was the former aide, who accused the governor of trying to groom her for a sexual relationship, that Charlotte Bennett had merely misinterpreted the governor's uh, care and concern for her as a victim of a past sexual assault. I think he still thinks that victim blaming is an effective uh, means to negate the facts, but I think it's just more embarrassing for him than it is actually effective. Charlotte Bennett gave the governor both barrels in an interview that she gave to CBS News uh, later uh, that day, I believe, uh, saying that, no, this wasn't a question of, of misinterpretation, that, um, that the governor was attempting to, to gaslight her and gaslight the nation. Now that the AG's report has come out, uh, some of that fallout might have included speeding up the Assembly's impeachment inquiry. What's the latest there? The Assembly needs to begin by passing articles of impeachment. That will happen after the Judiciary Committee, which launched an impeachment inquiry, uh, essentially votes to, to move ahead in that way. The Judiciary Committee on Thursday 
um, made it known that uh, it was it was prepared to move forward quickly, that it had put the governor's team on notice that they had a week, a little bit more than a week to submit any evidence that would tend to offer a defense for the governor. It looks like it is quite likely that if the governor does not resign, he is, of course, being peppered with calls from longtime allies for him to step down or be impeached. But if he doesn't leave office, it is almost certain that New York will experience its first impeachment process in 108 years since the impeachment of William Sulzer. And you can bet we here at the Times Union will be following that very, very closely in the coming weeks and months. Before I let you go, Casey, thank you so much for joining me. We are going to hear, we sat you down with Brendan Lyons earlier this week to get your takeaways on the report initially. We're going to move into that next. Uh, Casey, we'll talk with you next week. Thanks, Jess. Brendan, thanks a lot for taking the time on what has been a, a exceedingly busy week, and we're talking, just to be clear, on Wednesday. Uh, so I want to ask you, as you looked through this report, which is almost 170 pages from the Attorney General's office, what in it particularly surprised you? The most striking revelation for me, and it was because it was something I had worked on last year before any of these sexual harassment allegations had emerged was information that we received that the governor was in fact meddling in the protective services detail of the state police, the people who protect him. He has said when he was attorney general, governor should have no role in those jobs, who gets them, who gets promoted, who is assigned to him. But in fact, I was told, and this was affirmed in the report, that in November 2017, during a bridge dedication ceremony in New York City, the governor had spotted an attractive female trooper in her 20s, had mentioned to one of his senior investigators that he would like her to be offered a job on the detail. And I was not aware that this trooper had later, it came out in the report, been sexually harassed by the governor, including subjected to inappropriate touching. And it's the fact that it's a New York State trooper and that some of these incidents were witnessed by other troopers, I felt was one of the most damning revelations that that came out yesterday. And it also confirmed that the governor's administration had lied to the Times Union when they claimed that the rules were not changed to get this young trooper on the detail and that she did meet the minimum qualifications. We now know that was false. Yeah, just to be clear, what that means is we were told something that was factually inaccurate, and they knew it to be factually inaccurate by the executive chamber and by the state police. Yes, and there was, according to the attorney general, there was collaboration between the state police and the governor's people in how to respond to us with that false information, including that the governor had no role in her promotion And they attacked us for even asking that question, saying she was simply hired because she was a very well-qualified trooper, which is certainly the case, but there was more to it. That pushback is a subject of the narrative in the report. In other words, off the record or what, you know, what we considered to be off the record conversations from Melissa DeRosa, who is the governor's 
secretary, his top aide, and the governor himself um, that I had on a, a Friday evening in the middle of the winter as you were reporting out these stories. And look, editors, uh, reporters, journalists writ large do not discuss uh, off-the-record conversations. These, however, have now been described in uh, a fair amount of detail in this report. And uh, essentially, you were trying to report out this story. You had asked the executive chamber to comment on whether or not this trooper, that her bringing her on the detail made an end run around the regs on how many years you're supposed to serve before you can get on the gubernatorial detail. You got pushback on this, and then they decided to come up to me and um, invent. And that resulted in two calls. That that was the, something that I was very surprised to see. Even more surprising was the fact that a subsequent conversation, which was conducted on background with Melissa DeRosa and um, some other top Cuomo officials, had been recorded on their side. And that audio had apparently been handed over, whether by subpoena or some other means, um, Presumably by subpoena. Yeah. Right. And so, in other words, there is now a, in the public record a 37 minute conversation that you and I had as you were reporting out a story on the treatment of women within the executive chamber. Well, I would like to say to you off the record don't tell me anything off the record on this conversation, okay? Izzy, what are you doing with this call? I want to say I'm. Also, always grateful that when they get angry with the questions I ask, they take it out on you. And I appreciate that. Uh, well, that's that's why they pay me the medium-sized bucks, Brendan. I appreciate that. But one one thing that's worth noting that has been had made note of is at times during that meeting, they attempt to go off the record. And for for people who are not journalists, the distinction between a conversation that is held on background and a conversation that is held off the record are very different. And there are certain points during that discussion where they say, can we go off the record? Can I send you something off the record? And you and I both push back and say, no, if, if you want to give us anything, give it to us on the record. Can I send you something off the record? Uh, no, no, not off the record. I don't want that because, you know, I mean, I had one of your people trying to send me Boylan's personnel record off, you know, and I, I didn't want that either. I don't, I just don't think. You know what, that's fine. I'll send you it on the record, but can we agree jointly that you won't publish it unless I'm okay with it? Why would you send it to us unless you're not okay or unless you're okay with us publishing? Brendan can see contact. No, don't send us anything unless it's on the record, Melissa, okay? I'm going to send it on the record. Great. The setup for that meeting was that I had put questions to Peter Ajimian, their communications director at that time, about many issues, um, about uh, one of the alleged victims visiting the governor at the mansion, being alone with him in his, in his second floor office there, about the setup at the chamber in terms of how women dressed, how women were positioned, did he, you know, was he, did he have, they were, they were making a big case out of the fact that the governor from his office could not see where the executive assistants are seated. Um, but that, you know, but, but they did, 
disclosed too that he often would go out into that area and say hello to everyone. So I'm not sure whether that mattered, but the, but in the end, what they did was they they requested of us, could we meet with Beth Garvey and Melissa DeRosa to answer some of these questions? Beth Garvey, who was a, a lawyer, a counsel within the executive chamber. Yes, counsel, senior advisor to the governor. The the ground rules were that it was on the record but that the it would be attributable to senior aides with the governor unless otherwise noted. And I would just say that I rarely, if ever, allow people in that administration to go off the record with me, including the governor. So I think if you have questions for, for government officials, that they need to be able to answer them and not try to go off the record to undermine someone or their credibility in secret. So it's a good practice. The other thing is that if somebody goes off the record with you and lies to you, it's much harder in the context of, of journalism that you report out to hold them accountable for that lie. Sure. Brendan, are you in front of your email? Uh, I am. Beth, speak now or forever hold your peace. Melissa, I have no idea what you're sending. So the idea that I'm going to bless whatever it is you're about to do, like, I'm just not. So do whatever you want against legal advice. At this point, I'm not sure why we're still on the call. Moving on, nobody here has a crystal ball, but what do you expect is most likely in the weeks ahead? Of course, there is a, a constant death watch right now as, you know, these statements of lack of support, statements from unions, from elected officials, from advocacy groups calling on the governor to resign. Of course, the call from President Joe Biden. There's always the possibility that in between the time we're recording this and the time this podcast goes out, the governor resigns. But do you expect that to happen? I don't on the basis that I cannot see what comes next for him. I feel as though, you know, he's 63 years old. He's finishing his third term. I think at this point, at at a minimum, he may think, can I just get to the finish line of this term? Can I survive that long? Even if I don't primary, I don't try to run again for election. But he may also be banking on the fact that memories run short and things like this can fade into the ether, sadly, within six months sometime if no one continues to ask, if no one continues to press. We saw that this year. Many of the allegations outlined by the attorney general have already been detailed over the past six months in multiple newspaper and other reports, including ours. Yet, people who had called for the governor to resign were still showing up at press conferences and and cutting ribbons and talking about, you know, public funding projects and such. So I think that he will remain defiant. Just today, somebody in the Office of Children and Family Services, I believe, or one of his agencies, you know, his own administration is now saying that I cannot support this governor. So he has a shrinking world of support, but where would he go next? Would a law firm hire him? I don't know. So it may be that he is he's a little desperate right now, too, to try to maintain his grip on this office. He can't be forced to leave unless there's an impeachment. And I think that will also now move at a little quicker pace than we had seen due to this attorney general's report coming out rather abruptly. Just for, for those not familiar with the, the kind of protocol for impeachment, it would have to start in the state assembly. 
Speaker Carl Hasty has already said that the Assembly Judiciary Committee, which is had been for months conducting its own impeachment inquiry separate from this, dealing with the sexual misconduct allegations as well as a lot of other issues, that is now going to be, uh, it appears, fast-tracked. If the Assembly votes out articles of impeachment, the governor is temporarily removed from office while a trial, an impeachment trial in the Senate is conducted, with the jurors effectively being the members of the state Senate, as well as the justices of the Court of Appeals. And that could take, what, two months? A little bit more than that, potentially? Absolutely. You know, as I said to people, nothing moves quickly in the New York State Legislature, especially not an impeachment proceeding. Although you see, you know, there have been these the impeachments of Trump and the world was watching. And so maybe that has emboldened the legislature as well to say, look, we can do this. It can be done. We can move quickly as well as they did in the second impeachment. I don't think that people want to see this languish and and drift into 2022 when now you're months away from a potential Democratic gubernatorial primary. Well, and as the Times Union noted in its editorial calling anew for Cuomo to resign or be impeached, this is also a workplace, right? A workplace that this report now reveals has been led by a serial sexual harasser. So every day that the legislature does not act is another day when Andrew Cuomo remains the boss over a sprawling workplace. Yes. And it's interesting that many people in state government have reached out to me or remarked about the fact that if this was anyone else in state government in an agency at any level, commissioner down to a ground level worker, there is no doubt just one of these allegations would be enough for that person to at least be placed on leave, if not suspended, while the allegations are investigated. And that that did not happen with the governor. He, He remained in office. He remained in power, although my understanding is he has visited the Capitol office very infrequently. Brendan, I don't want to put you on the spot, but you're not taking any more vacation time between now and the end of the summer, are you? It depends on the golf weather. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much for all of your good work and to the Capitol Bureau as well. Please keep it up. Right on. Thank you, sir. As always, you can read more about all the stories and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. After the break, why are so many local on-air personalities suddenly leaving the industry? Christy Gustafson-Barletti will tell us more. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Ranieri's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. In the last year, a dozen on-air reporters and anchors at local television news stations have left their jobs. Television news is an industry that's already prone to turnaround. Yet even so, this is a remarkable exodus. What's going on? Features writer and blogger Christy Gustafson Barletti has been reporting on the comings and goings of local broadcasters for years. I caught up with her to get her take on why right now we're seeing so many leaving not only their stations, but also the industry. So it seems like every other week you've written a story about someone who has left the broadcasting industry here in the region. What's up with that? Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, we've seen all media, TV, print, radio, obviously declining in the last several years. But the last year or two has just seen almost this mass exodus of on-air reporters, staffers, anchors, that kind of thing, leaving not only leaving their stations, but leaving the industry. And I think it's a combination of things. I think it's a combination of the pay isn't great, the hours are tough, and the culture, especially in modern day, can be very, very challenging. I wanted to help people and and use my experience in media to help keep people safe and informed. Um, So I've made the decision to leave radio and TV uh, and pursue opportunities outside of media. Kelly Lynch announced this week that she was leaving 810 WGY. And in her goodbye, she even talked about how hard it can be to deal with the public and how challenging it can be when you feel like everyone's coming at you all the time. And it takes a a good amount of thick skin to do this work every day and put yourself out there and respond to the emails that are quite unkind most of the time. Yeah. All right. So let's talk numbers. Can you give me some specific numbers about what you've seen in the last, like, say, year or year and a half? Yeah. So 2020, which was an interesting year, obviously, for many reasons, but including in media, because some things like radio stations had to let people go because the advertising wasn't there since because of COVID. But in 2020, we only saw a dozen people roughly leave the entire year. And some of them, two of those were radio teams. So there's two groups there. And one of them did come back. That was Sean McMaster and Andrea McMaster. So far this year, as of what, let's say August 1st, August 2nd, we have already seen a dozen people leave. And of those 12 people who left their jobs, 10 left the industry. So that's pretty significant that only two people stayed on air. Allison Finch, who's a meteorologist. She was at WNYT. She went out to Massachusetts. And Daryl Camp went over to WMHT. All right. Can you give me a quick breakdown of the numbers uh, per station? Yes. Unless I missed anybody, we've had one departure each from both CBS 6 and Spectrum. We've had two so far from WTEN, and we've had six from Channel 13, WMHT. And I think that's why people have their eye on WMIT and find it they're most interested in that one because they just keep saying why and what's going on and what's happening. What have you seen prior to this? I mean, people like I mean, we've had some long time reporters and anchors at these stations. I mean, what, what were you seeing before all this started? Well, there's a couple things with that. Anchors typically are less likely to leave than reporters. And there's two reasons for that. An anchor is the most desirable role for an on-air television journalist. So once you're there, you're typically, hey, I'm happy, I'm good. A lot of times the anchors are a little bit older and therefore they might have families. They might have kids in the area who are in school, you know, a spouse who's working in the area. So they're less likely to be transient. A lot of times you see young reporters, you know, 21, 22, very young, leaving because 
this is a stepping stone. Albany is now the 50, I want to say the 57th market, but we're in the fifties. And so it's a, it's a mid-level market. So people start here and then they often go out of the area. I mean, we've even had a couple at channel 10, both Jimmy Marlowe and Ben Ryan left and went to stations in Florida. And that is not saying anything negative about the area. It's just saying, Hey, I'm going to a bigger market. And all of us in our career want to improve and, and get better and get bigger jobs. So I don't think there's anything significant about that per se. I will say a couple of years ago, Channel 10 had four people leave all pretty close together and people waved a red flag and said, oh, they're all leaving. What does this mean? And I don't think it really meant much. I think, again, it was young people leaving to further their career and that wasn't that significant. But now what we're seeing is some longtime anchors. On May 28th, I will be uh, turning in my uh, anchor shoes, I suppose. We've seen Benita Zahn, who is truly a veteran anchor. She left WMIT to go work in the healthcare field. She has her doctorate in, in that industry. Um, I'm going to take it easy for a while. I'm going to vacation. I've been you know, working pretty steadily for 41 years, and I'm going to take a bit of a break and just see what comes to me. Uh, Jim Cambrick, another longtime anchor, he left. Karen Terraracci, She's also an anchor. Now, she went over to Spectrum to to do sort of a production-type role, so she's still in the industry but not on air. Those are three anchors with a a strong history who have left on-air positions, and I think that's what's new. People aren't necessarily leaving to further their career out of the area and stay on air. They're leaving for a new career or the next stage of their work life. That doesn't make the industry sound very inviting for others. I mean, what are you, you mentioned this a little bit before, but like what specifically are you hearing that you can talk about? You know, why, I mean, you mentioned News Channel 13, a lot of people have left in a very short amount of time there. What do you, what do you kind of, what sense do you have of what's going on there and why people are leaving? Yeah, I think anything I could share would really just be gossip and that doesn't necessarily feel fair because you're not hearing from from both sides. But I think with anything, you know, there's a culture in this industry. You and I know that from from working in in print media even. It's that it can be very challenging because the demands are tough. It's a lot of fun. I think it's the the best industry to be in. It's a great job, but also especially when you're on TV, you're listening to constant criticism every day, not from inside, but from outside, from from viewers and followers, and people are nitpicking. And it, that just makes it very, very challenging. I also think chemistry is very important, right? So these people are working closely together day in and day out. This is not to say that any of these people did not have great chemistry, but if you're not working well with the person, when you have to work that closely with them, that can be very challenging. But I also think it comes down to like I said, a, a quality of life. The prime positions have the tougher hours. Let's say you're an 11 o'clock anchor. You don't get home till almost midnight every day, and that's not ideal for everyone. Or you're on the morning show. You're starting at 3 or 4 a.m. every day, and that gets challenging, especially if you have a family and if you have children, or even if you just want to have a social life. You know, I'm sorry, I have to go home at 5 o'clock p.m. because I need to be up at 3 a.m. and be at work. So. Also, I think 2020 allowed a lot of us to reevaluate what was important and kind of see that our families and things like that may maybe should be prioritized slightly differently than we did already because we had the opportunity to do that since we were around them so much. And that may be part of it as well. 
it's hard to underestimate the impact that that had on everyone for sure. It's not like we're coming at this in a year when a giant global pandemic didn't happen, <laughs> in which case we could we could look at other factors as well or weigh them weigh them more heavily. So what are you, you know, put on your kind of futurist hat? What are you seeing? You know, what do you think is going to happen? Are there going to be more departures this year? Are we going to see those numbers go up or are we leveling off? I think we will definitely see more. Look, it's only August. There's definitely going to be more because people are always, no matter what industry you work in, people are leaving their jobs. That said, I have my eye on two with pretty reliable sources saying that they will be on the move fairly soon. Um, and I'm sure there will be more. And, and again, some of them will be leaving the industry. There could be a retirement, but then there can also be people leaving the area to go to other stations or to work in media in a different capacity. We saw that with um, both Erica Lee from Spectrum and one other reporter as well. They left to stay in the industry in the sense that they're still writing for broadcast and that kind of thing, but they're doing it in a slightly different way. And I think it just shows how the media industry as a whole has evolved. Whether you're a reporter or an anchor or a print journalist, you don't just go out, report the story and be done with it, right? There's so many elements and levels to it at this point. And I think becoming that, that getting that multi-talent and realizing that you do have options outside of traditional, the traditional stand-up outside the Capitol or reporting the story from, you know, at the anchor desk or whatever. And I think that they're looking at those opportunities and looking ahead because some of the people too, like Emily Deficiani, she's over at Baker Public Relations now. You're young, you're looking at what your career holds and thinking, okay, maybe there's greater opportunity or a greater variety of opportunity if I leave the industry. And maybe even I'll come back one day. Who knows? But I definitely 100% think we'll see more movement this year, especially in television broadcast, but probably in radio as well. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. And special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Brendan Lyons, and Christy Gustafson-Varletti for their reporting and contribution to this episode. 